Get a computer repair business website up and running, starting from scratch, even if you don't know anything about website design. Check out the new Tech Site Builder 2. Save 20% by going to techsitebuilder.com slash MHDD, which stands for My Hard Drive Died. Hello, everybody. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode 18, the hard drive podcast uh, from soup to nuts. We cover all aspects of hard drive and, to be honest, the business of hard of um, hard drives. I am uh, I'm, uh, joined today by Scott Moulton. How's everything going, Scott? Everything's going great. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, I will say, since the ownership of Podnuts has officially transferred to me, uh, it's a lot of work. I bet it is a lot of work. Uh, it's it's good to hear you're now the official owner of Podnuts. That's great. And uh, congratulations on your uh, acquisition, however that happened. Uh, with money. <laughs> okay. With money, that's that's a good way to go. Exactly, and and you know, uh, Steve's offered a lot of help, but I know what it means to him to move on. And at the same token, nine to five job, family, and the Podnuts Network. Um, I'm ready for beer every weekend now. Oh, I bet. Yes, I I understand that. That's a. Uh, I've got a friend. I don't know if you if you knew Rick Hayes, and he did the ISD podcast. And I think they did something like, because they did it daily for, you know, 300 and something episodes or whatever it was. And uh, so he finally quit like a month or two months ago, had his final show. And I I just know, you know, 300 and something shows and how how much time that might have taken. There really wasn't much of a life left after you just do that every day. And then you're like, well, you know, now I can't go to, you know, Tilted Kilt and See Girls in Skirt because I got a podcast to do. Exactly. Or something like that. So, you know, hooters and have some wings. Um, so now you are now uh, the proud owner. Yes, very proud. But I will say, uh, I told Steve, it's like this. You had a child. I just a, um, a, um, a, uh, adopted the child. Anything that directly impacts that child's life, I'm still going to put by you out of respect. To which, you know, he's like, thank you, but I don't care. Just do what you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like anything else. Once you once you paid for the car, you now own it. Right, so, exactly. So that's good. Well, I'm glad that I can still be on and, and doing a podcast with you and keeping it going. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I got to ask, it's been about two and a half, three months. Something tells me you have been very busy in that time frame. I always seem to, you know, because we, we used to do a podcast fairly regularly a month at a time. You know, and, and I was also doing a radio show every month. And so I did that for like, you know, four years altogether. And so now, you know, it's just been with the traveling and with all of the new equipment, new things coming out, learning and doing training all the time. It's just absorbed so much of my time. I just, like you doing podcasts, it's become, you know, another adventure where it's always, you know, travel, marketing. I've gone to ShmooCon and Outer Zone. So those are two conferences, and then I've done two training classes in between there. So roughly, that's one month of my life right there between wow. those things, because uh, I did a speech at, at ShmooCon, and then uh, and then physically at least, uh, you know, this time from a standpoint of doing um, uh, Outer Zone. This is Outer Zone. I did not do a speech, so this is one of the first times I haven't done a speech or done anything. Gotcha. Well, can I ask, uh, I've become a fan of, um, basic conferences all around, 
Uh, can I ask, did you have fun at the conference besides just giving a um, talk? Yeah, uh, so, you know, it's become second nature for me at this point to do the talks. And so I develop the material, I do the slides. Uh, it, it even becomes hard for me to remember that I even did a talk at this point because it's just like, okay, it's my turn and I get up on stage. And, you know, there's a certain amount of information everybody's expecting. And so I've done some research on this time. It's on SD cards in cameras. It's the new version of the SDXC cards, which we have mentioned before on, on Podnuts. But uh, I had done some further testing and then displayed my results and stuff on stage. And then uh, and I really enjoyed myself because that's usually I have a lot of friends that are in Atlanta or a lot of friends in other places that we all, you know, basically ascend on these locations and we're all hanging out together and stuff. So there's a lot of times I don't see the people I really know in the city that I'm in. And so a lot of us, uh, there was a huge group of Atlanta people that went to Washington, D.C. to do ShmooCon. And then Outer Zone is here in Atlanta, and I help run, do the hotel, do a bunch of other stuff. And, uh, and you know, basically just this time I just kind of watched everything other than, you know, setting up the hotel. And uh, I, I enjoyed myself and had a lot, of, a lot of different conversations with lots of groups of people. So this is, this is probably the first time at least I've kind of just taken a break and, like, it's been almost 10 years, I think. Wow. So you were actually able to sit back and watch the conference instead of being in it, in it. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the Outer Zone is a small one-day conference, and there's only about 100 people. And so I know a tremendous amount of the speakers and stuff, so we all just kind of hang out and talk and eat lunch and go to dinner and stuff. And uh, even even when I'm doing the other conferences now, usually I don't often go to a conference I'm not speaking at. But I've been doing this since 2003, so this has been 10 years. So I've probably done something like 160 or 180 conferences. Wow! I mean, the badges. I like have a whole. I have I have this display case. Like you go into a jewelry store and they have those octagon display stays, right. you know, that stand up. Well, that is full. So that is full from top to bottom with memorabilia from different conferences and books that I'm in and comic books that were the, you know, the, the guide to the conference and things like that. And just tons of speaker badges. I mean, it's like, you know, 70 pounds of speaker badges at this point. <laughs> so, uh, and it's overflowing. It's, uh, I've got piles on the floor surrounding the, the, the octagon of, of death at this point. Uh, cause I don't know when or if I'll ever be like, there's things I walk by there and I'm like, Oh, that's where that is. Oh, I had no, <laughs> You know, it's just, there's so many things in this case at this moment. So I have this book by uh, Theodor, the guy who wrote InMap. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the InMap book. I actually have uh, some, I have a case that I actually was, uh, I don't know how many, I, most most of the listeners probably know I was arrested many years ago. And uh, for port scanning a government agency. And then ah. Theodor uh, wrote like two or three pages about me in his book. And so in the purple in-map book, there's a couple pages. So I got him to sign it. And uh, and so, you know, we've we've chatted a number of times. And just things like that that's just like, you know, in, encrusted in the middle of this case uh, with, you know, 10 years of stuff, legacy stuff that's happened. That's good. So in about 20 or 30 years, you'll be able to look back on it. But right now you're too busy to. Um, yeah, I see. I see like a couple of days ago, I saw somebody post on Facebook that they're moving their desk and when they were moving their desk they were 
they had like a picture of their wall and they had like a thousand badges on their wall just you know just like just just like we're talking about like mine are in piles mine are just like physically in piles. i don't even bother to hang them up at this point i think it would rip the wall down uh and so he was talking about moving it and you know it's you know probably a good you know 100 badges on the wall and so we had a good discussion about that. But people, there's other speakers that I know that have been to these things. And, you know, they have what's called badge envy. So oh. at some point in time, somebody has either a badge they don't have or a quantity of badges that, you know, everybody's envious of all these conferences. Because if you're just starting out and you go to two or three of these, they become the treasure that says I was there. And so I had a little bit of badge envy because he's got uh, – I spoke at Torcon a couple of times. But Torcon apparently made this really awesome-looking badge that looks like a black gear, and in oh. the middle there's a gold gear, and for some reason that seems very appealing to me. So, so I was in envy of some of his badges that he has collected. That's fair, trust me. Um, I don't. I mean, I've been to a couple conferences, and they're so efficient. Let's say there is no badges, like real badges, badges. Yeah. But I'm already envious. Yeah, the, the the a lot of the other conferences, you know, hacker conferences, they're used to creating something that seems cool. You know, some people do punch cards, some people do floppy disks. You know, some like DefCon makes their you know electronic badges, and uh, and then the professional conferences are almost always like, here's a ribbon with you know, attendee on the ribbon, and you just pin it on your shirt, and it's like, you know, they really haven't gotten it, they really haven't figured it out, and so like. Next month, I'm actually going to a conference that I'm not speaking at, and it's a professional conference. It's a forensics conference, CEIC, which is uh, it's basically guidance. It's in case, and they put on a forensics conference. And uh, so I know, you know, uh, probably another, you know, 12 or 15 of the best forensics guys in the world, and they're all coming to this conference. Or there's two that I know of that are great that are missing it, so that's too bad for those two guys. But uh, but and that's because they're speaking at other conferences. But that's kind of the thing is that we're all going to go and meet and do the same thing. But I've got this division between the hacker world and the professional world when I go to these different conferences. So I have to divide them up. Uh, I way prefer the hacker conferences than the professional conferences. But uh, you got to attend all of them. It's kind of like cold calls. You know, right. uh, when you're marketing, ninety percent of your revenue is going to come from referrals. And like 1% is going to come from cold calls, but you still need the 1%. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm just really getting into conferences. Uh, and I got to say, it's the people, like you were talking about, just hanging with the people, talking to them, to which I just find an, an absolute blast. Because you hear all these stories and experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think one of the biggest things is is that you usually get to meet someone you know, maybe you consider to be famous that you've read some of the work that they've done, you know, and I guess in the world of fame, you know, it's not like, you know, you know, Sarah Michelle Geller or somebody like that. It's, you know, it's just, you know, it's a bunch of us that are working and we've done some work and then you run into them and, and you can collaborate with them or talk to them. And most people seem to not be, you know, stuck up like you would think they would be. Right. And so, so they'll typically help out or do something or be happy to sit down and talk to you. And that's really the part that I enjoy because you can, go over your findings they've got findings and like i said there's like 12 or 13 of us that are that you know talk to each other all the time all over the world and share this information and uh and and so it's really good when you finally get to sit down face to face sit around a fire and you know have a meal or something and talk about these things so but you know i i enjoy it not only from that but 
you know, there's many avenues of, of going to these conferences. The first one is, you know, going to those classes that you really need to learn something in. And this is where things started to fall apart. And, you know, I've been going to conferences for, for a decade now. I've been going to conferences for longer than a decade, but I've been speaking at them for a decade. And I think the quality of material has diminished to the point that people are saying, okay, I only have 50 minutes. And it's really a marketing talk and not an actual tech talk. That's and so yeah, so everything's become 101. It's become, you know, now now what's happening is you're a professional and you've already gone through a decade of this type of work. And now you're showing up at a conference and you say, well, I want to learn something. Well, they're not really starting at a position where they're saying, okay, you're advanced enough to be in this room, so we're going to start at level two. They're starting at always 101. And so it's always like 30 minutes of introduction and maybe two minutes of good stuff. And And I'm getting very distraught by that. It's almost like I think we should make an advanced conference. It's actually kind of on my list of hopefully one day maybe things to do. Just make an advanced conference, skip all the 101 stuff, and have everything start at level two, and just assume, okay, we know how to install VMware. We know how to you know, put Windows in VMware. And they actually, a lot of conferences will start with those things, and it's just, you know, we're way beyond the things that, you know, you can read in a book or whatever else at this point. Yeah, I was just at a conference where, I, and exactly what you're talking about, there's a guy there called... Um... Theodore So, TSO. He's basically the guy that invented the EXT file format. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about partitions and hard drives and formats and everything. He talked at such an advanced level. I thought to myself, this guy, I don't, I shouldn't be in this room. I obviously should not be in this room because this guy is way too smart. He's the guy that broke the mold where everybody else was doing like a 101 style class not this guy well you know if you sit in that the first round you're actually like okay i don't really know this but the second round the third time that you show up or you know you'll you'll you know you'll gain 20 30 percent of that knowledge in that in that session instead of the other way around which is you know you don't gain a nugget at all and so i would much rather be in a conference in a room i didn't know anything right yeah i'll say he was talking about things that i didn't know but he was saying some of it in such a way that I could understand, you know, I it certainly, was at least the beginning. I, I would have loved to have been in that room because that's exactly the material that I want to listen to. Uh, and, and he's, you know, it sounds like he's a great guy. I would have really loved to listen to that. Right. Well, I will put a link in the notes. Uh, what what con conference was that? This was the um, Northeast GNU Linux Fest. He basically lives right around the corner. Oh, which is the reason why he was able to show up. Um, it looks like right now his conference is not posted, but I will keep a eye on it. They have like 10 talks posted uh, about tour and other stuff, but his talk I know will be coming out. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I'd love to see it. Very cool. Um, so now I got to ask, uh, we, we got a email and um, I will hardly admit, reading off email during a podcast is probably one of my biggest weaknesses uh, next to maybe kryptonite or something. Um, <laughs> basically this good friend of the, um, of the um, network um, black hammer. Uh, he was asked to do a job for a company. Um, they basically have a eight year old Pentium four with an 80 gigabyte hard drive and no backup. And they're looking at upgrading Finally, uh, and they're looking at a core 
i7 with an SSD hard drive. And he basically like immediately put on the brakes and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is an SSD actually quote unquote good for a business class server? And I will say he told me off the record, the company tried to tell him the SSD drive would be good for 20 years, Mm. which I don't know how they can make that, that kind of claim. Well, it, again, they're not taking a liability uh, into account at all. So if your stuff dies and they can't, you know, and you lose data, or your server's down or whatever, you're still supposed to have backups and whatever. Just because they make the claim doesn't mean that there's going to be any validity to it at the end. You know, most of the time when you even say lifetime, it's normally seven years. So, so you know, they know that they're just making a sale at this point and whatever. But, you know, here's here's the other side of this, too, is that, you know, so all the all the time that I've been doing stuff with solid state, there's there's consistently been one thing that has always happened, and then and then again with marketing doing exactly the opposite. So what happens is in the older SSD drives, every cell you could write to a hundred thousand times before it would die. A hundred thousand times is not a lot. It's not as much as you would think it is. So what they do is they do something called wear leveling, and they shift all the content all over the disk. So we've had other talks about this before, and we've done it in depth. Basically, you know, uh, you can make it live twice as long by having twice as many of the cells and then just swapping all the data consistently in the process of wear leveling. Well, as they get bigger and bigger, so when you go from, you know, a 16 gig to, say, a 64 gig, you're actually now switching from what would be called an SLC, which is the older version that could write 100,000 times, to a, a MLC or something called triple bit. Right. And as they have increased in size, they have to shove more data into the same cells in order for it to be uh, counted at a higher amount. And by doing so, they've diminished their write cycles from 100,000 to 10,000. And so you only have 10,000 writes before the thing dies. And then you also have uh, in triple bit, maybe 5,000. Well, so the marketing people like to say, well, because of all this smoke and mirrors and tricks and all this other stuff, we've figured out a way to make this uh, this thing last forever. And so it'll last a million rights. Now, they've said a million rights, and I've seen this marketing material and things all the time, but I have yet to see it proven. So there have been times that I have done consulting jobs where I've had to actually look at SSD drives and uh, and try to rate them and f- figure out how long they're actually going to live. Mm. Well, newer newer drives, the faster they are, there's something that's called the self-healing time that has to do with when you write data and then you erase data, you have a certain amount of time in between that the cell actually has to heal before you write to it again. So as you make it faster and faster so that you could say the server is going to be smoking fast and it's going to make it awesome, uh, you've now done more damage in the process. So... I have a prediction, which would basically be that, and I've seen it actually happen in other servers, people who were actually putting SSDs into things that were on all the time. This is really where the difference comes in. You know, you buy an SSD and it's in a laptop. Your laptop is closed. It's off half of the time. Or it's, you know, while you're traveling or doing stuff. Your phone, when it's off, it's not really doing very much. It may be doing some minor task, but for the most part, you're not reading and writing to it on a consistent basis uh, until it's in use and you're copying data to and from it. And and iPads and things like that. So you can see kind of the, the remarkable thing is that most of the time, most of these devices, they're going to live, they're expected, most people expect their device to live approximately three to five years. 
So that makes sense if it's off half of the time. Right. Now, when now when you're looking at a server, you're looking at things where you're doing you know photos and video and copies and databases and exchange servers. You're talking about swap files, things that are going to be written often, all the time. And so, personally, I think that all of the stuff that the marketing people are saying and these people are saying, where they'll say I've lived 20 years, is malarkey. I think it's complete utter bullcrap. And I think that the faster that it is, when you're actually, you know, breaking some of the speed barriers that we have today, you know, doubling and tripling hard drive speeds, we're looking at, you know, a year and a half or, you know, less lifespan. Now, now when you're starting to think about servers, you know, people think, okay, fine, well, you know, let's say I do expect it to last a year and a half because I want the fastest one. That'll be awesome for a year and a half. It'll be really fast. Well, people forget time. You know, when you install a server and you're dependent upon that server, you're just expecting it to be rock-solid stable. I would much rather put a SAS drive in and know that that server is going to run for 10 years than to put an SSD drive in and take a chance on it dying in a year and a half. And so that's really what I'm looking at is that those number of writes. You know, I've got servers, you know, that, that I put in in 2006, 2007. They're still running, still running Exchange Server. I've got stuff that's a decade old still in my office that's running. Um, even when I bought, you know, it, and you don't think much about it until you start putting the server together, but I've got a 24 terabyte server that I use for client data. So, in other words, I use a RAID 6. So, also, because this is the other problem, is I no longer believe in RAID 5 at all. RAID 5 has become a disaster. Now, 10 years ago, RAID 5 was awesome, and I would have never thought that you would have never needed anything else besides RAID 5 because we had stable drives. You could put another drive in when one died, and it would live long enough to rebuild the other drive. Now, consistently on a on a, on a a always basis, that's actually the way I would look at that, the server is actually in the process of rebuilding, will die, and you end up with a RAID array that doesn't function at all. So, uh, so my 24 terabyte RAID 6 server, um, I, you know, even with spinning disk, you're still not looking at a lifespan that's probably greater than three to five years. So they're just trying to make a play in this marketing stuff. And some of the some of the people that I advised not to put solid state drives in 2009 has now started to cost the company like a million dollars because they put devices out in the field that actually they went against what my recommendation was. And now solid state drives are dying in the field. And so it's not just about the drive and the investment in the drive. It's now about the restore time, the agent's time to go out into the field and do it, the downtime, the reputation of the company. And so, you know, these people who are only thinking, okay, fine, it might be a small server in my office. I mean, this dude, uh, he's, uh, what was his name? Blackhammer, yeah. right, Jeff. So Blackhammer, he says uh, they have a Pentium 4, 80 gig hard drive in a server, and they're not doing a backup which means they've been living on a system built in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So they've been living for more than a decade on a server. There's no way that, that was going to happen with a solid-state drive. Right. I mean, the best solid-state drives that we've ever had, I just don't believe they're going to happen. I think what's going to happen is we're, we're looking at an impending disaster across the board. I think, like, the iMac that has a Fusion drive in it, my prediction will be is that if they are actually used for video production or photo, uh, you know, any kind of real photo editing where the machine is processing data 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. that they're not going to last more than a year and a half or two years. You're going to start having deaths. So, so again, that's part of the problem is that IMAX go to sleep. So if you leave the office and you're not doing anything, they go to sleep for, for 24 hours, you're fine. 
but um, but normally some of those video editors are going to be running full time. They're going to be rendering, running, running stuff that's never going to stop. And I think an SSD drive will be a complete failure. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I I believe they have their place, just like anything else. There's a place for them, but in a server. Um, I don't like the amount of activity it can see in an SSD drive. And um I and I kind of told him I thought we were going to also mention the uh single layer and the multi layer. Even if it's single layer, it's just, you know, too dangerous. Now, here's my question. They have business quote unquote grade, server grade spinning platter hard drives. Mm-hmm. Is are any manufacturers at least putting out something that they call like business grade server grade SSDs? I, I, I don't know that they've been marketing it in that way. So the, the way SSDs are made, um, so NAND chips is what the main thing is that's used for storage. And there's a handful of manufacturers in the world that make the NAND chips and they do like they do with processors or anything else. You know, when, uh, when you're baking them and you're going through all your testing routines and stuff like that, you'll grade them according to their quality. Well, the more that a vendor has to pay for the for the item, the better their reputation and, and the more likely it's going to last longer and be a pretty rock-solid device. So, in other words, Cisco is not probably putting crap for solid state in their devices. They're probably using the highest grade. That probably costs, you know, and they can afford to pay it because somebody's buying a Cisco router is going to pay a couple grand and not think twice about it or 10 grand or whatever. Whereas you're going to get a memory stick at Micro Center, you know, there, there's no warranty. Nobody gives a crap. It doesn't make anything, you know, whatever happens, happens. So there's no real reputation to be lost other than don't buy the Micro Center memory stick. Right. And, and so that's kind of how those things are decided as well. So when you're looking at solid state, most of those manufacturers are are probably used in a pretty robust chip already. My problem would be let, let's you know let's look at it from a number standpoint. Let's say because uh, you know the entire magic of an SSD is software. Mm-hmm. It is not it is not hardware. The magic is software that they've got some special piece of code that's doing the wear leveling, that's doing these smoke and mirror tricks all the time to say, well, if this one's bad, then maybe we can use this part. If this is, you know, something happens over here, there's no guarantee, so let's shuffle this around. And so there's this whole process going on with SSDs to do smoke and mirrors in software. And whoever can write the best software, you know, let's say, you know, 10 years ago, the guy who wrote software just said, let's slam some data down on the disk, no big deal. The new guy's going, you know what? Um, GNU Zip is pretty awesome. Let's use the code from Zip. Let's figure out how to actually compress the data. We're going to write twice as much data to the same sector. So therefore, we're not going to write two times. We're going to write, you know, we're going to do what's called write amplification. We're going to, you know, basically diminish the amount that we're actually writing. So we can do a two to one or a five to one ratio. And we can store that much more data without doing damage. Or we could use, you know, compression, encryption. Uh, hardware encryption. So it's all tricks. It's all a big trick. So let's talk about the numbers. Let's say, let's say we got an SLC chip and we had no smoke and mirrors, none whatsoever. So nothing shuffling anything around. Your FAT table, your MFT table is on your drive. And when you write to your MFT, dates and times are updated every time you touch something. Well, unless you're using Windows 7, if you're using, let's say, XP, um, because that's, that's, that's not going to be aware of the solid state drive at all. Right. And and so in XP, let's just say it's doing all those defrag routines, whatever else, and there's no software running on the device. 
and it runs for 100,000 writes before it will die. Well, because those places will be updated in the same place, 100,000 writes is going to be 18 days. So that's how that's how long it will be before a single... Now, that doesn't mean the entire disk. You know, that location where your fat table is being updated is going to die. Right. So you have 18 days. So let's say some manufacturer really did figure out how to make something that's not based on some crappy silicon that everybody else is using and that these five manufacturers have somehow magically created something that's going to be, you know, a million or 10 million rights. So a million rights is only going to be 10 times 18. Yeah, 180 days. So we're still not looking at anything that's that massive from a standpoint of if I was running the server, what would I think? You know, if it was, you know, 10 million, then again, maybe we've actually got something now that's exceeding your five-year lifespan and, you know, or coming close. Uh, but that's a lot of ifs. And that's a lot of trust. That's a lot of trust in a manufacturer. When you go online and you say, I would like to be a developer, let's buy a NAND chip. Go look and see who's selling NAND chips. And you'll see, because most of these vendors that are saying this magic stuff, you know, it's like Corsair or somebody coming along and saying, oh, look, we've got this magic chip that we've made that, you know, is going to somehow live. We can also make it faster, which means we're going to decrease the self-healing time. At the right. same time, we're going to make it faster. And we're going to increase the amount of size, so you actually have 512 gigs. And somehow they've come up with a way to go the opposite direction that everybody else has gone. Yeah, because that would, in common sense, shorten the life of the drive, but they're saying yeah. it's making it longer. Well, like I said, you could do a lot of smoke and mirrors. So let's say let's say instead of having 512 gigs, they sell 512 gigs, but let's say it's really 700 gigs of space, and they're swapping out you know, another 200 gigs. That is going to increase the lifespan, but they haven't actually increased the cell life. Right. So, so they're just swapping out a bigger chunk of that data. But one day, the day is going to come where the cell isn't going to survive in the process of reading and writing and doing this whole process. And so because everything's on a grid, everything is decided on a grid, there's a big chunk of data. And if your cell is based on a block size that's, say, 128K, when you have one bad block, it's 128K. Right. So you actually have some tremendous issues here. So I think it's quite risky to waste money, energy, and time on putting these things in a server that you're also not going to see. I mean, one of the jobs of a server and one of the things that's become really efficient with servers themselves is the caching processes by which they go through to keep your data ready or to know that it's, you know, that you're asking for it over network. You're also not exceeding the cable speed. Uh, so, you know, so unless it's an index that just happens to be running remotely on the server and so it's SQL Server or Exchange Server, well, maybe that makes sense to it locally, but it's still serving the user. So I've still got a problem with this whole concept of, you know, what difference does it make if what you're talking to is 10 miles away if you can't get the data over the pipe? Right. And so so that's only that's the biggest thing. It's like, and who cares if it boots in 18 seconds? If I have a server that runs really stable and it's slightly slower than somebody else's server, but I, but I run 10 times longer, I'm going to laugh yeah. at them. Like, oh, your server's down? Well... And people just become more and more dependent on it. Even if you're a small company and you know if you're doing well, your company grows, you have five people in it, and now you've got five people depending on an ACT database that's sitting on a server that you built when it was a Pentium 4. Right. Yeah, I definitely keep thinking the only benefit from doing an SSD is boot speed. 
because most applications, most databases, exchange servers, the mail servers, they keep a lot of stuff in RAM. The most used stuff, the most needed stuff is in RAM. RAM speed would become more important to the end user than hard drive speed. Yes, and and RAM speed has always been on a fairly increasing cycle that is non-destructive to the memory. And so from a RAM standpoint, we've got some of the best RAM that's probably ever been made, and, and that's continued to get better. You know, you could buy a bank of memory that's, you know, 16 or 32 gigs, put it in a server and set up a RAM disk for your swap files and stuff, and you would probably get just as big of a benefit from a standpoint of offloading some of that process to an SSD on something that's not, or or from an SSD instead of an SSD into memory, uh, getting indexes and things running faster um, without the detrimental problems that you have with an SSD. That's that a really good sense. point. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. A, a lot of sense because RAM's cheap. Yeah, know? by comparison. I mean, it's you know it would be fairly expensive to throw 32 gigs in just to use as a swap space. But you know, still, you know, that's also the longest living uh, solid state drive that there has ever been because we've had those as solid state drives all the way back to you know the 70s, 60s, maybe even prior to that from that standpoint. So, so that's kind of at least going in that direction. What I would think would be the best thing. The other thing is too. Most servers have a RAID controller in them. So the RAID controller is a RISC processor. It's a board with memory. It's a whole computer on a board. And so if you're not using a host-based controller, because if you're using a host-based controller, which uses your processor instead of having its own processor as your RAID controller, and then trying to throw SSDs in to make it faster, then you're just stupid. You're just doing the wrong thing, right? (laughs) So if you hear host-based controller SSD, you just made the wrong choice. Because you really want a discrete controller that has its own processor, memory, and controller. Because the controller speed is going to be the first and foremost important thing. Uh, And then I.O. speed from your disk will be second. But there's a couple of applications I can think where if I was building out a server and I wanted to do something that was fast, that maybe I'd do an SSD only because of... So, for instance, in forensics, we have a lot of indexing. So we do a tremendous amount of indexing on our cases so that we can review the content. But kind of when I'm done with it, and it's all temporary anyway, because, uh, you know, even if I offload it and save it and archive it or whatever, the process of me doing it is temporary because I actually have a source disk, and my source disk is where all my information is coming from. So all the stuff I create in between is ancillary, and I could recreate it or redo my work or something else if something bad happened. Not that you shouldn't back up your SSD drive if it's in a server because people are getting the wrong idea there too. Um, but, you know, you could make a smoking fast index server for that purpose and then not worry about its lifespan. So it's fine if I can do a job because my time is much more important now uh, than the server's time living for a year and a half. In a year and a half, if it dies, I'm going to buy the next machine. And a lot of forensics people do these constant upgrades anyway, just like gamers do. So that's the other the other thing is, you know, if a gamer loses his machine, so what? Reinstall your game from Steam. And then, uh, and then again, you're off and running. So, uh, so, so those things are getting better and better. And Steam is, you know, storing some of your game data now and things as well. So, you know, that's kind of the next thing is that make all this stuff somehow upload to the cloud so that whatever disaster actually occurs to you isn't isn't a disaster. Yeah, companies' thought process now is the cloud will save us with everything. Well, except you just put all of your trust in someone else you know the cloud server here's the best way i can make somebody believe how valuable that is or not valuable once upon a time walmart sold mp3s 
then one day they decided to turn off their authentication server. Right, and it and it did uh, a phone home. Yeah, so you lost the ability to play MP3s you have paid for. So, or or in that case, whatever their audio, blah blah blah. I'm just saying, there's a day that somebody, and this is the same problem we have with software activation. Software activation is is a very touchy subject for me because I had bought a program years and years ago, back when they were first starting to do it in Windows, you know, in the late 90s, and then you know, physically we're doing some high-end software where it would phone home. And so I have this, uh, I use this tool at the time. It was called Papermaster, and Papermaster exists today, but back then, uh, Papermaster got bought by HP or something like that, so they shut the company down. And so for like you know four or five years before it went back on its own, so they had some sort of a licensing thing. So I was stranded. I mean, you've got this tool that you know you've activated, but you can no longer. They've shut the company down. You can no longer. You know, your database is held there. What happens if it crashes or something bad happens, or if you want to upgrade to a new machine, you can't. And so, uh, so it's really been a very difficult task. So, any software that I've done, I try to consider if it's going to be activated, then it's going to be something that's temporary. It's going to be something I know I can live without, or I have a crack or a way around it. Right. Because I'm not going to invest in any software, and I have completely and I've told companies this and refused to buy their product if they have activation. So right. there's many tools I just don't do. And if you have, I'll pay for a dongle, as long as I have a, a perpetual dongle, that makes sense. But once you say cloud and you say activation, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I do every operating system. It doesn't make much difference to me, but I prefer Macs because so few of their applications actually have some sort of a feature to phone home or do something. You know, Microsoft Office still does, which I still find annoying as hell um, that every time you're dealing with Office that I've got to do all this work to actually set up and use Office. But I also know if the day comes and I can't activate it, then there's some free tool I can't use and, you know, screw that. But, you know, at least from that standpoint, there's just no, there's no way that these things should continue on in this direction. It's really a horrific thing. And I, and I'm afraid that the Mac world is going to go more in that direction. So that it's going to be more about activation uh, from that perspective. And the app store is kind of activation from that standpoint. Yeah. I've been uh, trying to uh, avoid everything cloud-centric that I don't own just because it seems like the vendor lock-in model is moving from the desktop to the cloud and they're trying to put their hooks in to make sure that they still got you. Mm -hmm. Well, and people keep asking me the same kind of things because I teach these classes where we're doing data recovery on static drives and things. And they're always like, well, isn't the cloud going to kill you or isn't solid state going to kill you? But, you know, amazingly, we still have spinning disks and you know, amazingly, there's still plenty of work to be done. And there's a lot of analysis. Sometimes the problem isn't even the device. Sometimes it's the content. Something happens to the content, and it's got to be gone through with a hex editor and tried to, you know, be deciphered into, you know, some sort of a problem or, or something that will fix itself. So so I'm, I'm pretty cautious of the cloud as a whole. Uh, I don't generally put anything in it unless I've got redundancy someplace else. Yeah, I've been using um, own um, own cloud on my own network opening up ports because it's my own cloud storage with um android clients ios clients desktop clients just hmm. like just like a dropbox but the only limitation is my local storage ah i see 
Yeah, I haven't really spent any time looking at that yet, so uh, I haven't tried to like spin up a lot of cloud storage or do anything on my own. I'm, I'm just still. I, I'm a big fan of Dropbox, but you know, at least Dropbox replicates it to the other machines, and so I'll have like 11 machines that are replicating the data somewhere. Yeah, the only hook for the new user to own cloud is you got to remember if you don't have a SSL cert on that server, everything is being transmitted in the clear. Mm. So that's the only thing people have to be a little bit wary of. But I want to roll this conversation back like 10 minutes. I am a RAID novice in the fact that if I don't completely understand something, I don't use it. You know what I mean? I really want to make sure I understand the pros, the cons. If something goes boom, how do I fix it? So I, I don't really know a lot about RAID. I basically understand the basics of RAID 0 and RAID 5. I have no idea what RAID 6 was, but you seemed pretty uppity on RAID 6. Yeah, uh, so RAID 6 is RAID 5 with one more drive that has another stripe of parity across all of the drives. So in other words, um, you know, normally when you calculate what you're going to have for RAID 5, you would say X number of drives minus 1. Well, when you're doing RAID 6, two drives are added in and parity is then distributed in two slices across all of the drives. So, in other words, instead of one single drive failing and your system still running, I, I could have two drives fail and the system still run. So I have one more additional, and this is different than, say, a hot spare or something like that. So the problem with RAID 5 and a hot spare is that there may be an extra drive in the array, and you say, I'm a hot spare, so as soon as a drive dies, automatically take over and start distributing the data to it. But if something horrible happens during that process, it actually will then lose the data. So you could have a power outage, you could have, I mean, there's a dozen things that can happen. Usually whatever caused the problem with the first drive caused the problem with the second drive. And uh, and so, you know, the other thing is too, is that data that's written on the drive is not authenticated by the drive at any point in time while it's writing the data. So when it's writing the data, it doesn't know that the data that it wrote was bad, so that's how you have a bad block. Ah, gotcha. So that also then gets into, you know, your RAID array from your parity standpoint. Well, at least at least RAID 6, and you still have that same problem if something bad happens and whatever data was written, parity can still actually be distributed and then recalculated to get back whatever that data is using ECC. So you do at least have some recoverability from that standpoint, but I'm mostly concerned with the fact that, you know, more than one drive can fail. See, and if the hard drive guy puts in a RAID system specifically so if two drives can fail, you're still okay, everybody else should then be a little bit worried and follow the same kind of thing. I mean, you know the likelihood of drives failing better than well, probably anybody that listens to this. Even more so, running the data recovery side of my business I see RAID 5 in for recovery all the time. <laughs> so if the idea is, well, I see RAID 0 and RAID 5, but, you know, if the idea is that RAID was redundant enough that it wasn't going to die, then you should never have it in for recovery. And so obviously that's not the case. So I had, you know, an 8 terabyte RAID array last week that was, you know, 8 1 terabyte drives and two of them had failed. And so I, you physically have to go through the rebuild process of, of whichever drive is the drive that died last, then I don't have to fix one of the drives, but I have to fix the one that died last. And so I have to physically go through this process. But spitting out, because this is really the problem, 
It's not even the reassembly. Like I can reassemble the data and I can get it all back. The problem is spitting out seven terabytes of data. That's really the problem. Where are you copying it to? How are you exporting it? You know, it's seven terabytes. That's not like a day. Yeah. That's like that's like a week uh, of exporting data and content. So I'm just saying, if even if you're going in that direction, most people are thinking massive amounts of data. They want 10 terabytes or something like that. Your problem is going to be, even if you can repair it and get it up and running later, getting that data exported right. or imaged or copied off. It's a, it is not a fast process from that perspective. Um, it, it, you know, and, and that, again, becomes kind of another ordeal along the way. So if I have RAID 6, uh, and I'm like, okay, fine, you know, one drive died, but it hasn't even degraded the array at this point. I'm still in good shape. Gotcha. Yeah, the, uh, the, yeah. so with the RAID 5 and the hot spare, if one dies, you better hope that that rebuild goes quick and another drive doesn't die during that rebuild. Well, my, my 24 terabyte RAID... I have had one drive die, mm. and so obviously because I'm RAID 6, I wasn't worried about it. Another drive comes in, I replace it, I'm able to get it up and running in that time, and I feel pretty safe because even if another drive died, I'm okay. And, you know, that's really kind of the part of the problem is when you buy drives and you're putting them in something like a 24-terabyte array, you, you're buying them all at the same time. So they all have the same lifespan or the same approximate lifespan, and you're dealing with them all at the same time. But I'm just going to tell you, RAID 5 is not safe. It, it, now, a decade ago, drives were made far better than they're made today. And I would also say SAS. Um, now, we kind of have a problem with SAS drives coming up here. But for the most part, SAS drives, which are, are the serial SCSI drives, basically, have been much better drives. And they have lived longer than SATA drives used in the same RAID array. But what I'm starting to see, what it seems like is happening is now that we're down to three manufacturers of hard drives, we have Seagate, Western Digital, and Toshiba. That's all that's left. So in those three things, um, some of the manufacturers look like they're kind of taking some of the technology they're using in SATA, the cheaper technology, and making them in SAS drives. So they're not maybe now actually really what a SAS drive is. Like, Because uh, if you have a SAS array, it's downwardly compatible with SATA. But okay. not upwardly, like a SATA card is not upwardly compatible with a SAS drive or, right. da or downwardly, whoever decides what is up and down at this point. But uh, but so you can have a SAS card and you can plug SATA drives into it and use them on a SAS card. Yeah. And you and you can plug SAS drives in. So you can have a slew mixture of different uh, drives in this array. But, uh, but, you know, not the other way around. And I, my opinion is SATA is still crap, and SAS, at least when you're doing a reliable server, is the way to go. Um, which this does bring up kind of another kind of a weird thing. You know, for years in doing data recovery, you know, we've had, you know, there's been a do you know, hundreds of manufacturers that drives out. They've all been bought up. Like Hitachi has been bought by Western Digital, and Samsung was bought by Seagate. And years ago, Maxter was bought, and there's just a ton of other manufacturers. And then Toshiba bought Fujitsu. So that's how we got to three. And uh, for 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 a decade, or as long as I can remember, because Fujitsu used to make three-and-a-half-inch hard drives, and then there was a problem with their line of drives where they had a, a, a type of plastic in their CPU has went bad and basically made, it, made all these drives fail. Well, uh, so there hasn't been any Fujitsu 
or Toshiba three and a half inch drives since like 2004 or something like that. And then today, for the very first time, I was at the store and I saw a Toshiba three and a half inch drive on the shelf here in America. Mm. And and I was just in shock. Like I haven't seen like all these years now, we've only had a choice of now Western Digital or Seagate as a three and a half inch. But in two and a half inch, they all make laptop drives. So all three of them made laptop drives. And I know Toshiba's been very popular in other countries, not really that popular here in America. Most of the manufacturers here in America have been using Seagate or Western Digital. So I haven't seen a lot of Toshiba or Fujitsu hard drives in for recovery. And I think it's really just because they're not a big portion of the market. But I was really in shock today when I saw this three terabyte Toshiba three and a half inch, because it used to be that Toshiba would just like relabel Hitachi drives if they wanted to say I had a Toshiba, whatever. And we all knew they were Hitachi, so we never even considered them Toshiba drives. But I see, you know, now that Hitachi was bought by Western Digital, my guess is that Toshiba decided to make their own line of drives now. And uh, and on their box, they have a cutaway of their drive. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, I know we don't have a picture here in this whole thing so people can hear or see it. Maybe you should go online and you should look at this because if you've been listening to this podcast for you know two years now and we're on the 18th episode plus there was like two or three other episodes that were in the in the uh, pod nuts scenario, um, you know when I'm talking about quality of a drive what I'm usually looking at and looking at the Toshiba and look and comparing it, you can look at the magnet, you can look at the voice coil, you can look at every component of the drive and it just looks cheap. It just doesn't look like it's a well-made drive, uh, even compared to Seagate or Western Digital or the stuff that I'm used to seeing. So if you see this cutaway, go look at it. You'll see, like, you know, the magnet is, like, half as thin, half as... I mean, and, and again, it's a voice coil magnet. It just it, it doesn't have to be a powerful or really powerful magnet to make it work. It just seems like it's kind of a low-end cut drive, like maybe they were trying to save money. Even the spindle, the way the spindle is done just looks cheap to me but i'm just in shock that now as of today i've seen i've seen a toshiba three and a half inch i don't know what that's going to do to me in data recovery because we don't know how to deal with these maybe yet gotcha yeah i was able to find a picture of one on a bh a photo a bh photo big site whole lots of hardware yeah right and, the- and if you look at their two terabyte the uh, 3.5 inch internal drive. The picture looks identical to what you uh, showed me before the show. And I'm not in any way an expert on how these things should look, but Scott was pointing out things. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I would trust this drive. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Well, it was like 10 bucks cheaper than the other drives. And I chose not to at this point buy it. I'm thinking I'm going to buy it one day just to experiment on it and open it up and see whatever, you know, or at least I'm waiting. You know, we have several pieces of data recovery equipment that we use for imaging and diagnostics and firmware tools and things like that. And the problem is anytime something new like this comes along, you know, it's six months or a year before we actually have the tools to deal with something new like this, that nobody's reverse engineered it and people haven't updated the software for the new firmwares. You know, and so I'm just scared of, oh, look, it's a great deal. Let's get it to Shiba and save 10 bucks. Uh, okay, maybe in two years when mm-hmm. we have some sort of proven, you know, reliability standard, which is the same problem with, with SSDs that we were talking about earlier. 
you have no proven lifespan for these drives, and you're just going to run out and buy something and hope that it's actually what they say it is. This right. is this is the same problem. So yeah, and that makes sense to what you were saying about uh, conferences, and you were liking the um, hacker type conference more because those are the guys who will take in reverse en- engineer these kind of things. No. Yeah, uh, they do reverse engineer them. Uh, more than that, though, I think what I like is the professional conferences tend to be a little wary of who they're going to offend. Like, you know, they don't normally stand up on stage and say, look, I looked at this tool and it's just bullshit and I'm not going to use it. And, you know, this is why it's a complete piece of crap. Whereas in the hacker conferences, people will be like, we don't care who we offend. This is my opinion. My opinion is, you know, and that's what the way I try to be. I try to tell people what I think it actually is uh, in the process of going through this. Just like, you know, a lot of people get mad at me. Oh, Mac, Fusion Drive, it's fast. It's awesome. You know, I know I know quite a bit about how it's actually working and what's actually happening. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to say, I don't want to say it's a scam. I want to say, so back when Windows 7 was coming out, mm-hmm. it and people were talking about SSDs. One of the biggest points was Windows 7 was going to have something called trim. Right. And trim means I'm aware I have a solid state drive. So therefore, I'm going to change things in my operating system. This is one of the things where we finally have crossed the line between a file system being separate from our operating system. Um, you know, the file system used to manage everything and then just talk to the drive. And your operating system had no idea of what was actually happening. It just made its request and blah, blah, blah. But then we end up having things like, you know, since Windows 2000 and on, we had these performance enhancing things that would say, I'm running this and I know that the outside edge of the disk is the fastest location because there's more sectors at that location and that's the lowest LBA numbers. So let's automatically move files to the outside edge of the disk so that they would be faster. You understand what I mean? Oh, yes. So in Trim, they disable that feature because you're writing more to more sectors where LBA blocks are irrelevant because there's a table that converts those, and the SSD drive is doing some smoky mirrors, and there's no such thing as outside edge of the disk, so the lowest LBA number moves around on the disk because of word leveling. So these features inside the operating system were turned off. So then later on, macOS comes out. macOS then has a little highlighted feature that says in its preferences, later on when you get to the MacBook errors and stuff like that, you'll actually see even like 2009, you know, it, it one of the updates would actually say it was trim aware. So it said in macOS, I am trim aware and I know that I have a solid state disk. Right. And people thought, oh, okay, well then that means that it supports trim. And so, therefore, it's doing these functions. Well, I don't know if they ever changed any of the functions in the operating system at all. I can't find any source that tells me or any way that tells me, you know, like, because Microsoft's been very forthcoming about this. Like in Windows 7, this is what happens. And when you see a solid-state disk, then we turn off this feature. There's no more defrag. You know, there's no ready boost. There's no performance-enhancing stuff. This folder is going to be empty, and there's no, you know, pre-allocation. There's a whole bunch of stuff that they tell you is turned off. But when you try to find out in macOS what those things are, it seems like it's nothing. Like maybe they just like said, I have a solid state disk, therefore say trim enabled, but don't do anything. Right. Just here it is. It's a flag in your OS. And so uh, so now the Fusion Drive comes along. 
-hmm. And so the fusion drive is, you know, like 128 gigs of solid state disk, and then you're spinning disk. Well, what it looks like to me is they made the SSD, like the first 128 gig of LBA blocks, and then the last, you know, however big the disk is, the other half of the LBA block. So basically now, in order, the lowest LBA blocks are on the solid state disk, and the highest LBA blocks, which would have been towards the center of a spinning platter, right. where, so for instance, if you use the fusion drive in XP, then it would have been moving the files automatically from the end of the disk to the beginning of the disk, so therefore it would have moved them from a spinning disk to the solid state disk. And so Apple made such a big deal out of, well, it knows all about which files are important to you that need to be the fastest, so it's going to move those files to the lowest location you know, or, or to the fastest location of the disk on your SSD drive. So we'll automatically move it to the first 128 gigs when you use this file 28 times. Well, it just sounds like a defrag routine to me. It sounds like the same automatic stuff that was already there. It's just now that you've made your solid-state disk the lowest LBA blocks, we're going to automatically move your files from the end of the disk to the beginning of the disk, and therefore they're on the solid-state disk. So we had some special piece of software that we were intelligent enough to write that makes this happen. Yeah, that basically... <laughs> Somebody else did 10 years earlier on a different OS. Well, it's, it's that they, it doesn't look to me, or at least as best I can tell yet, maybe some readers or maybe Apple or somebody will write in and tell me otherwise. But to me, it looks like the OS was doing the same thing it always was, which was a defrag routine, moving the files that you use the most to the lowest part of the LBA numbers because they were on a spinning disk. So now all they do is they tell us we're trim aware, but since we have a fusion drive, they're acting like it was some big deal, this defrag routine that was already running that we just never turned off. So instead of saying, no, we don't do anything for trim, right. now they make it sound like the other way around, which is, we do something awesome. <laughs> which was the same stuff we were doing before. Like, we don't really have any idea that trim is enabled, but um, so we're not going to make any changes. But since we put our first 128 gigs of LBA space there, which is which is not what happens in the hybrid drives. Like, you know, you have the you know, on Windows machines or Windows 8 that you have, you know, 32 gigs of cache. Right. And that content is actually being managed by the system and says, okay, in order to be faster, we're going to take this chunk of memory, we're going to take these, you know, areas, we're going to write them there and actually do something. There's actually a driver and there's functions that take care of that and do a whole thing, which is completely different than what Mac OS is doing from that standpoint. And so there's there's certainly a lot more action happening on the Windows side than there is on the Mac side. So uh, this has been quite a conversation because the first half of the thing I'm saying, I like Macs and I'm using Macs. So, <laughs> la, la, and now it's, uh, and now it's, well, you know, this crap isn't really happening. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll say I never noticed until you said how now the OSs are becoming dependent and directly interacting with the files and the file system. We're be before it was basically a dumb handoff. Um, and I'm sure that's all taking up processing power, taking up RAM, taking up everything else. So, I mean, I don't know what what I would benefit more, just a dumb file system or a quote-unquote smart file system. Well, uh, you can easily test that. All you got to do is go back to Windows ME. <laughs> <laughs> and then anything else that's been built in this decade. And so... That's that's because uh, there's nothing. I mean, the file systems itself, like NTFS, was actually written in 1984, 1985. It wasn't released till like 88, 89. 
because NTFS was actually HPFS, which was OS2. Huh. And so, so all of this previously existed, and so it's actually a very old file system that started its design and its life in 1983-1984. And then you're looking at HFS, which is what Macs use. So, because keep in mind, there's HPFS and HFS. HPFS right. was high performance file system, and then later on, when IBM and 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 Microsoft broke up and had this little affair and got messed up and they broke up, then Microsoft says, "Well." We're going to rename it, and now it's called NTFS, New Technology File System, blah, 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 whatever. I mean, Microsoft wrote most of it, but that's, that's you know, kind of irrelevant at this point. But, you know, either way, that was, that's been around since 1984 or so. HFS, which is Max, has been around since 1985 and really has had only very small rudimentary changes when um, BSD, because Steve Jobs, you know, left the company, then he goes and starts Next. Uh, next is... BSD, and then when he came back to Apple, then they had to include all the attributes that were going to be from BSD uh, in 1997 into HFS, so that HFS would still look the same, but have all these additional attributes, so that you could uh, accompany a Unix file system uh, for a Mac three years in advance of it being released. And so, so, so it's still the same basic structure existed prior to that, but it went from HFS to HFS Plus at that point in time, which then has all these other attributes. So it's still an old hierarchical file system. And then EXT has been around since the 90s. Um, yeah. so, you're, so you're looking at 20 years old of file systems, which are still the three primary file systems that we're using today. So all you have to do now is go and look at, you know, either FAT or NTFS, because you didn't use um, NTFS on Windows 95, Windows ME, used FAT32 or FAT32 OSR, which was, you know, the OEM FAT32 version. Um, and so, you know, physically, they didn't have a lot of interoperability with the file system itself back in that day. And then right. moving forward, uh, you know, physically, NTFS and all these others actually do performance increasing stuff to actually make these things more viable and to keep track of the content. Um, except for... EXT, uh, you would probably know from the talk that was given, but EXT replicates the data across the disk to make it redundant. But I don't believe it really has any performance increasing functions to shuffle fragmented data around on purpose. I can tell you, I believe if I remember correctly, one of the things that Ted said about EXT, he now works at Google. So he's working on spanned clustered drives. They actually had to remove some of that kind of features where it would replicate the data on the drive because it would actually slow it down. Right. Which EXT4 right. uh, then did that as well. So EXT4, they removed some of the replicated data uh, because it we used to, like when he first designed it, was designed around the idea that there were small disks and that you would have these inode tables, uh, cylinder block groups, that were then, you know, randomly using a magic number sequenced across the disk. And so you could go find any one of those and they would tell you where all your files were. So it's kind of like if we had our file, our FAT table or MFT table and we make copies of it all over the disk, which we don't. Uh, so there's, there's no redundancy in ours. And, and so they're very redundant. And then the problem becomes when they move to two terabyte hard drives, now you've got this magic number that goes all the way across two terabyte hard drives. And when you do an update, it's just going to be dramatically slower because the time has to be updated in 75 locations instead of three. Right. 
And so, uh, so ext4, they moved some of that metadata so that they could diminish that so that they would not do all those updates across the entire disk to make performance better. Now, I don't know what he's doing at Google with the clustering, but I'm assuming, you know, it all has to do with file systems and how their database management side actually works because they disperse it like a, like some sort of mesh network or something like that where they actually move the data amongst, like they treat machines like RAID or something like that. Like all the machines are part of, you know, the entire uh, group and I'm sure some Google guy is gonna like I actually know a couple of Google guys so they could probably mm-hmm. just tell me but somebody will write in and go you know you dumbass you don't have any idea what you're talking about <laughs> so uh, feel free uh, educate me on that side of, of those things right well, well I can tell you a couple of things one as soon as this podcast is over I'm contacting the guy who has all the audio from that conference and I'm telling him I don't care give me a copy of that talk right now so I can get to you. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind, if I could have sat there and watched you and him talk after his talk, I would have been, like, immediately smarter. Well, I I appreciate you elevating me to that level, but I am going to tell you, I I would be in awe myself of those people because I am not of of that. I, I mean, I have an understanding, but I am nothing compared to those guys. Well, that might be the case, but you would have still been the second smartest person <laughs> in that room. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and I didn't realize NTFS was that old. He did go into a long explanation of it actually takes about seven years for a file system to become usable, mature, he said, because there is so much that has to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, and understand that today, so EXT4 is still a derivative of EXT3. So we had a few others along the way, like Riser. Riser was actually uh, very similar to the hierarchical file system, which was, you know, Mac's hierarchical file system, but uh, had to implement inode tables because Linux needs inode tables in this block cluster group. And so in order for it to be as fast as the file system uh, would be in a B-tree format, because that's what a that's what it's basing it on is what's called B-tree, um, that, you know, it, it did exist until Hans Reiser kills his wife and buries her out on the trail, and then it becomes known as the murderer's file system. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, nobody uses it. I mean, maybe there's 20 people. I don't know. There's probably somebody else who will send me a, a horrible, look, I'm getting <laughs> horrible emails now. Like, you don't know. You don't. It's like, or this live podcast. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, those are the kind of effects that we actually have from that, from that kind of thing that, uh. And, but now, basically, it's, you know, EXT, HFS, and and uh, NTFS, and pretty much FAT is on its way to death, but the replacement is XFAT, which yeah. is, you know, all the talks and everything. Now, XFAT was built around the idea that it was going to be an embedded device file system. And so, you are looking at now, XFAT is six years old. We're almost in our seventh year now. Mm-hmm. Now, it has been deployed primarily in cameras more than anything else. And now there's 1,100, it's a little bit more than 1,100 manufacturers who have bought into Microsoft's XFAT file system, which is completely different than FAT. You know, when people hear XFAT, they think FAT32. Right. And, and this is, that's just a name. It's just a complete, it's, it doesn't look anything like the previous file system at all. And so, you know, people, I see posts all the time that people go, well, why are we going to use crappy FAT? Just because Microsoft says we have to, because, you know, BMW has signed up. And BMW now has, you know, they're going to use XFAT in their cars or something like that. And people are like, why should we use FAT in our, you know, whatever. It's not it's not your father's file system. It's completely different. 
right. then those, and it's just a name. It's living on a name. But it's not a bootable file system. It's an embedded device file system. So it's not supposed to be a bootable file system from that standpoint. Gotcha. And, and so, so we are almost at that seven-year mark for that one. Um, and there's no others. There's no other. I mean, I, and when I say no others, this is when the Linux people yeah. send me or, you know, or Sun, you know, or Oracle or somebody sends me something. Go, what do you mean no others? We made ZFS and, yep. you know, NetApp says it's awesome. And then we sue each other. And then that's why ZFS is dead. <laughs> ZFS was going to be a possible uh, replacement, especially in Mac OS or Linux OSs. Yeah. And, you know, after those lawsuits, it basically became, you know, a stillborn child. And so, and I know there's going to be a lot of people who would say, no, no, it's awesome. We're going to put it in a server. We're going to do whatever. But, you know, and there are other things. I know Microsoft based some of their storage based stuff off of the concept of ZFS and things like that. And sure, there may be some derivatives that are coming down the pipe or whatever, but there's nothing that looks like it's stable and a commercial entity, and until you start hitting it in, you know, Mac, Windows, and something, somebody needs to make, like, kind of like we do with hard drives and we have ATA standards, somebody mm-hmm. needs to make a, a, a file system standard so we can stop this stupid battle between every different file system so we can finally, without having to spend a pile of money, say, have the same file system that we can use. Well, I mean, the same kind of things went has went in other parts of come, um, Come um come um, computers like file formats for audio and video, and some companies like the control that comes with buying into a copyright. Yeah, I I do completely understand it. But for instance, Microsoft has purposely made it extremely difficult for Linux users to use XFAT. Yeah, and so XFAT, you know, it it part of the problem with XFAT is that XFAT isn't going to be a piece of code that can be GPL'd. And so the code for XFAT is never going to have, I mean, because Microsoft wants their patents and they want to get paid. Uh, you know, as as great as Microsoft thinks that they are and that their stuff might be awesome and that I have to keep, you know, activating Office, um, it, the, there, there's still a problem if we can't all live together cohesively in an environment. I know it's always, let's beat them down because you know, a free operating system, blah, blah, blah. And I understand the theory here, but, you know, they got to spend $300,000 on a patent license, but it specifically almost completely obliterates the use of XFAT. And, and I know this is where every Linux user then says, well, the Fuse file system for XFAT works. Well, it's not legal, and that's the problem, is it was written by somebody who's not in this country who doesn't have to comply with our laws. So there's an issue if I want to be a developer, and now I want to say, here's my Linux platform, I would like to put XFAT in my TomTom and build something for it. Now now you're ending up with $600,000 worth of licensing fees and GPL code that can't be released and a whole bunch of stuff. So, Well, I'll just say, saying that it isn't legal is, is mostly accurate. For us, it isn't legal. But if you're in Ireland, it's legal. I mean, there are certain places around the world it is legal, but in no place in the United States so will it be legal. You know, and, and again, I don't want to seem, you know, unintelligent from this standpoint, but when you're looking at from allies and the countries and the whole thing, you know, there's a lot of vendors who come to America to sell because we have 300 million people and we have a good chance that we're going to spend some money on it. You know, forensics and things like that are ahead of some of the other countries, but then we also have China and India and places where their population far exceeds ours. However, an individual's income 
might not exceed ours. Or, you know, again, there's, you know, we're not the richest country in the world or, or physically from the standpoint of our population. But we, we companies spend money and they do this whole process and they look at America as a fairly viable business market. And then when you have, you know, because in London, you know, in England, you have something like 53 million people. So we're six times as large. So if you're going to have a company that's going to sell and buy and have innovation, there's, you know, going to be a, a portion of this that's going to be based on population versus sales. And so that's kind of the issue is that, yes, in Ireland, maybe it's legal, but until you actually have like the you know, six largest commercially viable countries have this happen, then you don't actually have a market. Yeah. And I, and I will say most of the Linux people, the business aspect of it rarely comes into their thought process. And that's not good because if there isn't business supporting it, it's going to fail. It's going to die off. It's going to fade away, you know? Right. Well, you know, and it, it's a strange thing. Like, for instance, Macs as a whole are not corporate. Like, really, I mean, because if you look at it, and this is why Microsoft doesn't even give a crap too much. I'm actually surprised they made Windows 8 because it's completely a, a consumer-oriented platform right. that has no association with, I mean, we've had this discussion before, too, because there's no reason for them to have done Windows 8 at all. Windows 7 could have lived on in just another version and been completely happy because an accountant's not going to use or don't want to use Windows 8 because the consumer interface now gets in the way of the usability. Whereas Microsoft owns, they literally own the commercial market. There's literally no replacement. Like, you know, sure, Linux people come along and say, okay, whatever. But fundamentally, there's no actual real support and replacement from that standpoint of making that commercially viable process. And so when you're looking at Macs, it's probably one of the only consumer-oriented machines that just because it looks cool and people have an iPhone and iPhones have made their way into corporations, but Macs really haven't. Right. And, and and you know, other than editing machines or something like that, you just don't normally see, you know, an office full of Macs, not only from, from a feasibility standpoint of integrating it into your network. I mean, there's no active domain there's no control there's no group events that you can push things down i mean that's really where microsoft owns it is in the control aspect from an administrator's point of view exactly. uh, uh but at least from a standpoint of max there are third-party implementations and i know this is where all those emails come in and people send stuff um but i can't really use a mac at work i can't really do my job like i until i can run real accounting software on a mac it's there's no commercial market period it's dead yeah and so i, I have a couple of friends that actually are linux weenies through and through that manage big enterprise style uh domains and they clearly say active directory and group policy is great and nothing even comes close to competing with it the way they can control manipulate and push things down to those desktops makes it by far, right now, the best. Yeah, which is kind of a shame because Novell actually owned that market. Yeah. And Active Directory was a joke when it came out. And But the control over being able to integrate your server with your desktop and control what your people do is king. And so until... Uh, and, 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 you know, at least right now, Apple has no hope of actually playing into that role. But what Apple really needs to do is they need to go to the big companies and they need to say, 
uh, okay, you know, uh, Sage, make a Mac version of your product native and we'll pay you. Yeah. And then you actually have an accounting package or QuickBooks and Intuit and stuff, you know, because they're, while they have them, they're shitty versions and nobody likes them. And so that's really the biggest problem with, with what the Mac actually has from a financial standpoint. But their really big problem is Microsoft has consumed, literally gone and bought, every other large major developer right. of accounting software, period. Like, there's very few left. Like, there's still Mass90 out there. I, I don't, and maybe they bought them recently. But they bought Solomon and Great Plains, uh, Dynamics, Navision. They bought all those companies, and they all now are all in, in a Microsoft world. So Apple can't go to Microsoft and say, make a Windows version of Dynamics. It's not going to happen. And so, so, so already the, you know, they've left the small market to the, so they still have a shot at the small to medium business. They have no chance at the multi-million dollar businesses. There's no chance. Yeah, there was a Microsoft, um, what is a term people were saying about Microsoft? I cannot remember what it is say, Molly, but something like, um, Duplicate, purchase, consume. Where like their corporate goal was to literally just engulf everybody that could compete, and they did a really good job at that. Yeah, and they have, and they have gone, and you know, to the point that no one probably knows that they're that they're that they're gone, or that you know, this whole market. Again, not that there's nobody, no other player in the field, but you buy up a major portion of the affordable players. And it and it's a done deal, right. and so so at least from that standpoint, that's all I'm saying is that you know Apple's only going to chase the consumer for so far. They've already saturated the market. There's you know new Macs come out, people don't rush out, or at least I don't think. They, I mean, like I'm not rushing to go replace you know, the existing Macs that I have. There's not really a big benefit if I was playing games, and who cares if it's slightly faster? Right. They, they care about a Retina display because they're working on graphics. Yeah, and apparently Chrome Pixel cares about display. Yeah, but that's but that's that's not enough for it. To, they've saturated the market, and I mean, I think the iPhone five is an example of this. I know a lot of people bought the iPhone five and they call it a great seller or whatever, but really there wasn't much of a reason to replace your iPhone four S. You know, it's right. one more row of icons. The rest of it nobody cared about. Right. Yeah, I do remember when they came out. Um, a bunch of people kept um putting out like fake pictures like the iPhone in three years and was a big long phone because they keep adding rows of icons. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and you know, it's, they should have already added, you know, local communication. They should have actually been, you know, this just seems to be no other innovation. And if iPhone six comes out and it doesn't have, you know, NFC or some other process, you know, it's just amazing. I just don't know what else there is to go to. I'm just saying Apple's kind of, there's just no other commercial market for Apple to continue to go to. And so as, you know, as a uh, adjunct from what you had said earlier, where, you know, normally if you don't get into business, then you have no business. Uh, right. Apple is the rare one that is just below that line that seems to thrive. Yeah. I will say they definitely had a sauce they were following and it was, and it was working for them. Great. I mean, richer than the U S government. And so, you know, they're doing yeah. something absolutely right. Yeah, uh, they're just beautiful machines. And but from a cost perspective, their drives and a number of the other stuff. I mean, they do. They are starting to have higher failure rates, I think, than what they previously were. I mean, they've had a great reputation for having 
very little problems in it when you're actually looking at it from that standpoint the consumer seems to always be pretty happy but now if the integration like for instance a lot of them have had problems with you know their Seagate hard drives that are in their iMacs and things like that uh, you start having a reputation problem with replacements of the drives you know what happens in two years if they're just complete failures instead of the normal lifespan of five to seven years for a laptop gotcha it, gotcha yeah so well uh, any okay. other amazing topics that you want to hit I got like 10 more, but we're going to hold off. Um, I had a question, though. Can I ask, what things are on your plate now? What kind of things are you going off to do when this cast is over? So uh, so I have two kind of major things that are kind of in play besides, uh, well, three, I guess. Um, so you guys know that I do classes, and so I've been doing data recovery classes for a long time. And I will tell you that the furlough is uh an amazing problem at this moment in time because normally every time i teach a class there would be five or or seven government agencies in that class and that has i mean in five years i don't think i've taught a class that didn't have a government agency in the class Mm. until until the last class the last class i just taught uh was distinctly missing an agency at all like no government at all and so normally I would have another seven or, or so people. So so that's been a problem, and that's coming up. That's that, that my next class, which is here in Atlanta in two weeks, has no government agencies in it or foreign agency people in it either. So that's the other thing that's happened is it's, it's stretching all over the world. It, it happened a year ago with RCMP in Canada, and I lost you know what would normally be a big portion of people coming to the class and then this. So... I've been thinking in terms of a new class. So I've actually been writing this this basic white paper and an outline of what I think a perfect class would be. Mm-hmm. So my so my next class that I'm trying to build, um, and the the general name that I have for it now is Defense for Forensics. So that's my idea. It's just called Defense Forensics. Uh, it's either Speed Forensics or Defense Forensics. And my idea is is that we could actually go through a process that would be uh, cases that are presented to lawyers like in the process of i've done many many cases at this point in forensics and not only with the data side and data recovery and the whole process but i have this idea with regards to a lot of these forensics people out there that are in the corporate networks and things like that unless they were ex-police officers they really have no idea what happens when you're talking to a lawyer or a prosecutor or a judge when you're actually going through this process. And they're afraid of that process. Mm. And so my problem with it from the law enforcement side, I've trained a lot of law enforcement. The majority of them don't do defense so at all. So they've only seen the prosecution side. Very few of them actually know what happens on the defense side. So when I'm sitting down to a lawyer, how complicated is the topic? What is this case work? How fast can you give me this answer? Like I've normally walked into a law office sat down and they want an answer in two hours of what I'm actually looking at. So there's so there's some process like, you know, did he wipe the drive? Does he have anything on it this malware? Does he have any and there's this whole enormous process that they actually want to know something in two hours. And so I don't think that there's the breadth of experience from a lot of people out there. So I've been centering my class around this, like the theory of, you know, not not just civil cases, you know, there's some commercial cases and things like that where things have to happen very quickly and answers have to happen very rapidly. But the idea of a case from beginning to end 
have sample cases in the process and have all this experience that I've had where things are weird. Like the one guy who wrote his own tool for wiping the hard drive so that I couldn't find his regular tools, you know, as a commercial product that I've bought. And so he actually took like a sample from a newspaper clipping and then used the sample in his program to actually overwrite the drive with these samples from headlines of newspapers and things like that, which, of course, is spoilization in a case. And so proving spoilization and going through these cases is actually uh, just as important as actually whatever the meat and potatoes of, you know, a crime or something else that you find is. So I'm, I've been adamantly working on this particular component. Um, I also have some new speech material that I am working on, which is based on the fact that Windows 7 and Windows 8 have a process that's running in them that's similar to check disk or scan disk that will literally cause all your files to be eaten. Yeah. So so there's a there's a process and I want to release a tool. I actually want to make like a sample tool that hunts down a setting, makes a change to the setting, and then you can actually see Windows eat the files on your machine. And so not really a virus, but a a proof of concept that that this healing process and transactional system could be a problem under certain circumstances. And, and and I understand why it's there and what the problem is. But it's just cool to see. Maybe, maybe it'll go nowhere other than that. But it's really cool when people actually see this kind of stuff happen in a speech or something else happen. So I, I'm working on a, a process to actually make that whole process happen and uh, put that together in something that I will submit at some later date. Very cool. Yeah, that would definitely make people's ears perk right up. Yeah, it's, it's really funny to see because... Uh, You'll be sitting there looking at the screen, and you'll see your files, and you'll see your folders, and you'll see everything. And literally in Explorer, things will just poof, pop, disappear. It's like, uh, and when it's done, it actually will will release the data as if it never existed. It's not like a normal MFT entry or something. When your master file table deletes something, there's a marker there that's put there that says this is deleted. Right. You can still open up a tool and say, okay, show me all the deleted files, and they have a deleted status, and you can actually see that content. This is this is this will actually make that disappear as well. Dude, see, that's like a bad Hollywood movie where it's just icons disappearing. Well, you know, uh, the process by which this happens, people have put a lot of faith in Windows and NTFS and their file system, and they have this concept that there's all this work that's going on in the background, and really, it's a simple, it's a very simple checksum. It's a, it's a, it's so simple that if I just you know, told people how it works or didn't display it, they just wouldn't believe you. They just wouldn't. They'd be like, "No, that's not possible. That's that's ridiculous. That I can't believe that that's how that happens." Right. So that's that's the goal is to be able to show that and just have you know people in awe. That sounds really cool. I will say that sounds very cool. So, so those are the main things. The next the next things are just focusing on my normal classes, and uh, so because upcoming I have another class in Australia. And then, uh, so in June, I'm going to Australia. And then Santa Cruz, California. Um, I have a, a sponsorship at a location in Santa Cruz, California. And so in August, I will be doing a forensic data recovery class there. And so uh, it's on my harddrivedie.com. You'll actually see right now because it's the next, it's three classes away. It's actually in the bottom on the first page. And you'll see Santa Cruz, California is in the list. And uh, And so... Looking for enough people to actually make that class happen. Usually it's going to be, you know, police officers and things like that. Hopefully the furlough hasn't affected them because I don't do California often. It's a very expensive trip for me to ship stuff and 
and uh, do insurance and do the whole thing because I ship like a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff to a class, and we do all this stuff manually. Like I have, I build out labs. Like literally, I go in the day before, and I I spend eight hours building out an entire lab so that I can teach you how to do data recovery, reassemble of drives, the whole thing, and uh, and so I don't do California very often just because it is so expensive. It's more likely I do you know Washington or you know I do Atlanta all the time and uh, Dallas or you know my class in New York was pretty successful but the problem in New York is again it's more expensive than California right. and so it's extremely rare that I'm going to do those classes so the one or two times that I show up and do those you better come because <laughs> <laughs> it's not I'm not coming back <laughs> right well uh, stupid question by chance do you have any pictures of this lab like set up like right before the um um class comes in um i do and uh they may not be directly on my site so i'll send you a link when we're done cool because uh i'm the guy i love looking at stuff i love seeing how stuff is i know if i you know touch it it will like catch fire so i don't but i like looking yeah yeah uh i do have some especially when i've done like some of my large classes like when i i did san diego I think I had uh, something like 46 people, 36-something people. And so the class is just full. Like, it's like, you know, thousands of items there. So I will find those pictures and uh, give them to you so you can post them so people can see. Because it's not normally on my site. Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, I definitely thank you for your time, Scott. Um, I'm already eager to hear the next uh, time that we talk just so I can learn some more stuff. Um if anyone has questions, comments, hate mail, whatever, su- suggestions, whatever, uh, don't forget mail at podnuts.com. I will make sure Scott gets each and every one of them, even the negative stuff. Um, uh, Scott, uh, I definitely thank you again for coming out, uh, and I really wish you luck on your classes and have a very safe trip going down under. Great. Thank you very much. 